0: Just just by way of summary, here's uh, an image that we've been using, and this is God's plan. And again, our plans don't look like this. Our plans are not a straight line. Our plans are very fragmented because we create a plan for the future, right? Like all of you have plans for the rest of today or for the holiday season, and you have an end goal in mind, you may or may not reach that end goal. Your plans may or may not come to pass. Not so with God. God's God's plans always come to pass, and they come to pass perfectly. So God's plan, then, is a linear, just a straight-line path from beginning to end. God never messes up. God can't mess up. What God speaks comes into existence. What God plans in his mind comes to pass, because he is a good God. He is a sovereign God. He is an omniscient God. He is an unchanging God, right? Isn't all that true? And so what God intends to do, he certainly will do, and nothing can stop him from doing what he intends. So when God plans the end of a thing, even from the beginning, he can accomplish the end, right? There's no chance that he's not going to accomplish his purposes. No chance. Not so with us, right? And we feel that. We know that. God is not like us. We just have to remember that. Okay, so the reason that the plan is dotted here is because to our eye, the way that we have seen not only history, but the future um, is, is not as clear Us as it is to God, and would you agree? Are God's plans just as clear to you as they are to God? No, we don't have perfectly all the plans of God in our mind, do we? No, the answer is no, we don't. Um, And so, God has been revealing from the beginning His plan, but He started by doing it in vague imagery and through covenants and promises leading us and revealing to us in a, in a more specified way over time, I think of this as kind of a funnel, and uh, God is taking us down a particular path, a particular trajectory to a particular end goal, but he starts out wide, right? Uh, but his, his plan is not changing, it's just his revelation of his plan to us goes from vagueness to clarity. That make sense? I hope it does. I hope that does make sense. And how has he done this? Well, it starts with Adam and Noah, back in the very beginning. You remember that covenant with Adam and all creation, and that covenant is then reaffirmed through Noah, right? And then, and then you have a sign of that covenant, and the sign of that covenant was the rainbow, of course. And then you have Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. And things started getting more narrow, not only more narrow as far as what God is doing, but as far as where that Redeemer will come from. And what was that promised Redeemer? Where did that come from? From Genesis 3.15. You remember that? From Genesis 3.15, that early on, we knew that there was gonna be someone come from the seed of the woman from cursed humanity that would crush the enemy of humanity and bring humanity back into paradise with God. But this time, it wouldn't be something that could be undone. It would be forever and it would be perfect. In fact, it doesn't go from Eden back to Eden. It goes from Eden to better Eden doesn't go from creation to a new creation that's just like the old creation and things can happen again in a cycle. That'd be bad news. Uh, you We're know, getting another redeemer. He's like, oh, here we go again. Uh, no, the new creation is not like that. God will accomplish his, his plans perfectly in that there will be things new forever in, in perfection. So then why the runaround? Why not just create humanity to be with God in paradise forever without this whole ugly mess of sin and evil? Why not just put us in paradise without the possibility of sinning. Why put the trees in the garden? Why not lock those away in a vault where we can't touch them? Because why? What's the answer? Because God has a plan. And his plan includes the fall. His plan includes a redeemer. His plan includes a new creation. God is not messed up. He's seeing his plan through, right? Okay, so the revelation of God's one singular plan is vague at first, but becomes more clear to us, okay? We talked about Adam and Noah, the sign of the covenant there being the rainbow, and then we, then we have uh, Abraham, which had another sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, and today we're talking about Israel, and in particular with Israel, it's the Mosaic covenant. That's what it's known as, but more, to that, more on that to come, okay? Um, in the story of God, As I said, things have been vague, general, but they're becoming more specific over time. Um, And the covenants are actually the things that are pushing forward the storyline of Scripture. And this is very important to understand. The covenants themselves are the things that are pushing forward the storyline. See, God has one path. I'll, I'll explain it this way. God has one path, okay? But there are turns on the path, right? There are times when... Direction changes and we go and we go this straight, but it's all one. God is taking this down this one path. It has no side paths that we can accidentally go down. But these big turns in the pa- are the covenants. So when they're big markers in time, these are the covenants God is making with people. And so they kind of form, as it has been said, not my own imagery, but someone has said, and I think it's right, that the covenants are the backbone of God's plan of redemption, the backbone of God's story. So the story hangs on the covenants, okay? So that's why we're tracing the covenants. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If the covenants are the backbone of God's storyline, then let's look at these big moments in time and these covenants that God has established. And as we do, God's plan and his promises of redemption are gonna become very clear so that when we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, as we do in Christmas, I believe it's gonna be far more relevant than it ever has been because we're gonna see how significant the Messiah is in the grand scheme of things in God's plan over time, right, at least that's the hope. Okay, so where are we now? Well, a couple of things. Here's how we're gonna start today. We are focusing on Moses and Israel today. Um, We're focusing on the Mosaic Covenant in particular. Uh, And I have to set up and summarize several things for you today. Uh, because, I don't know if you know this or not, but to talk about the Mosaic Covenant in Israel would take a little bit of time to cover in its fullness. Would you agree? Um, I don't think many of us are up for that. Some of you actually are up for that. Many of us are not up for that this morning. Uh, So we're not gonna do that, but what I am gonna do is summarize, and I'm gonna summarize where we ended with Abraham, uh, which is in Genesis, I'm going to summarize the rest of the book of Genesis and I'm going to eventually get us to Exodus chapter three. Okay. So that's what I'm about to do. And I'm going to do that possibly in a way that you don't expect, which is through the genealogies listed in the book of Genesis. You ever been reading, you read in the book of Genesis and all of a, all of a sudden you come to genealogies and you go, whew, and you skip with your eyes down to the end of the genealogy, and then you pick the story back up, right? Because what in the world is the purpose of all of these names, right? And you read them, you can't pronounce them, you don't know what the point is, so you skip until you get to the story, right? However, the genealogies are there on purpose, and I want to show, show you something. Um, just by way of summary, we will say this. God's faithfulness to the covenants and promises of redemption are traced through the genealogies of the Bible. Do you remember that God made a promise, Genesis 3.15, that there was going to be a redeemer come, and he was going to come from the cursed woman, and he was going to undo that curse by crushing the enemy and bring them back into paradise? Well, if God is going to remain consistent, faithful to his promise, and there's going to be a redeemer come from the seed of woman, we're going to trace what? The seed of the woman. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now, we don't trace everything. You might ask, why are there genealogies in the Bible? Specifically in Genesis. It could be, you might say, well, the ancient people were just keeping records of all their ancestors. But that's wrong. That's not right. That's incorrect. Because we don't have an exhaustive account. We don't, there are lots of names not listed. But there are particular names listed. Why just those names? That's a question. Why just those names? And it's because something is being traced. We're tracing something through the genealogy. It's very interesting. Okay? Now, these genealogies reveal the necessity and identity of the Redeemer. So as the genealogy is traced, we're going to have significant figures over time, right? Such as Noah, such as Abraham, such as Isaac and Jacob. Okay? We're going to have significant figures. David, right? Unfortunately, what's going to be the reality about all these figures? These great Bible figures that we know, what's the unfortunate reality about them? They fail. Over and over, they fail. And so we're wondering, is Abraham going to be the promised redeemer, right? Is Isaac, is Jacob, are the 12 sons, Israel itself, maybe King David? Uh, Who is going to be this great anointed redeemer? that great anointed redeemer, anointed in Hebrew being Mashiach, which is Messiah, who is going to be this Messiah to come that will redeem us, right? Who is that one? Is it David? Is it all, who is he? And so, of course, as Sam referenced last week, how does the book of Matthew start? With a genealogy. So genealogies are important, okay? So, I have here for you a, an image of the genealogy, and you're saying, "I can't really read that very well. I understand. That's OK. Here's what you have. Left side has Adam at the top. And then it has the three sons of Adam, which are Cain, Abel and Seth. OK? We have to kind of take Abel off because he's dead. OK? Um, but there is Cain and Abel and Seth. And we're wondering, from Adam and Eve, where is the Redeemer going to come from? Which son is going to father a child that will bring the Redeemer, right? And who, what's the answer to that? It's Seth. Now, Adam has other sons and daughters. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Adam has other sons and daughters. And if you read in Genesis 5, which is where this information comes from, you're going to notice that it lists Adam and three sons, but then it says... And he had other sons and daughters. And we're saying, wait, 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 what about them? What are their names? doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because he, <coughs> Moses is tracing someone. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, okay? Moses is tracing someone. So why give all these other genealogies if they have no relevance to the story? It's a story. This is a story. It's a big story. It's a story that over 40 authors have written over a period of 1,500 years. The main author being God himself, using 40 human authors, right? But it's the same story. God is writing a story, and the genealogies are showing us that story. Okay, so we have Adam and his three sons, Seth. Seth has, uh, Adam has other sons and daughters. Seth has Enosh, and Seth has other sons and daughters, but we're gonna focus on just this one. Okay? And then he has Canaan and, and other sons and daughters, but we're just going to focus on this one. You get the idea? That's what those plus marks mean. And others, but we don't care about them. Okay? Mahaliel, uh, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah. Uh, now, you know Methuselah, right? He's famous. Why is he famous? He, he was the oldest person to ever live 969 years. And you might think people can't live that long. Well, things have changed since then. The actual nature of the physical earth itself changed after the flood, and you'll notice that after the flood, people started to not live as long. Something happened, okay? But at this time, God enabled for people, he created an environment where people actually could live that long. So we believe that to actually be true, okay? So these people are living a really long time, almost a thousand years. Can you imagine? Wow. Uh, Blessing or curse? Uh, I don't... That's a long time to live. Um, but the Bible we see is being very selective, as you can see here. It's being, being very selective in its conveyance of information, isn't it? And why is this? It's because there is an intention not to deceive us, right? But it's because the Bible is telling us a story. And it ends here with Noah, and Noah has how many sons of note? three how many sons did Adam have three and others right Noah has three Shem Ham and Japheth and no more actually he only has three okay so then we start with the one that's important Shem and God has determined that through Shem this one is gonna come and so then we have our Shelah, Shad Sheila Eber Peleg Reu Sareg Naor and Terah and then Terah has how many sons Three sons, and all three names are listed. When you look at the genealogies, you're going to notice that only the characters with three sons are listed. When they have three sons, things stop, and all three names are listed. In all the other cases, just one son is listed, and they had other sons and daughters, and then they had this son, and other sons and daughters. But then all of a sudden, it's like it stops, and it's like, now this one had three sons. Why, why are we naming three of them? Why were they more important than the others? You following this? Is is Moses trying to tell us something? Yes, the answer is yes. Did something significant happen at the time of Noah? And did something significant happen at the time of Abram? And so the genealogies are telling us something. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Okay, so then you have Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, so we can go to the next one. Then we have Abraham. And Abraham, uh, he has sons through three different women, and so the women are identified there for you in pink, if you can see it. So Abraham, um, he has Ishmael, and, but he's not the point of the story. And he has Isaac, and, it, and it's clear that Isaac actually is the point of the story, so things start to be traced from Isaac. But did you know that he had uh, six more sons afterwards? And so Abraham actually has eight children, and... It's only one, though, that the Bible continues to trace the story through. Isn't this interesting? What are we tracing? What is the Bible telling us? They're tracing the Messiah. You see it. That's why this is important. Okay, so then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And what's significant about this? Because it seems like God is just picking the firstborn son out of all of them. And what does he, what does he do here? It's like, oh, let's change it up. And so we actually have the second born, Jacob. And now God says, now things are gonna gonna unfold through Jacob because that's what I've chosen. And so Jacob gets a new name and his new name is Israel. And that becomes pretty significant. And so he then has 12 sons through four different women. Okay, and there you have them uh, listed. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, with one little exception. We have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, and Joseph and Benjamin. Now Joseph, you don't hear much about the tribe of Joseph, and that's because he gives his inheritance and blessing to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they become the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, so it still makes 12. Okay, so if you ever read in your Bible and it says the half-tribe of Manasseh, half-tribe of Manasseh is because it was one of Joseph's sons, okay? So that's how all that works. So we're tracing someone here, and the blessing then comes to the 12 tribes of Israel, and now it's spread over not only one character, but 12. So the genealogy gets a little different at this point in time, okay? So from the very beginning, all I'm showing you here is that the Bible is leading us to Jesus from the very beginning. Okay? And I hope that you see it. Now, we're pausing in the genealogy right here, but where does Jesus come from? From the line of Judah, and then specifically from the line of David. So it narrows even farther, doesn't it? Okay, so the Bible is telling us where the Redeemer is going to come from. But as it stands... God is doing something with Israel through the Mosaic Covenant, and that's kind of where we're placing our emphasis this morning, is on that Mosaic Covenant. Now, before we get there, there's another significant character that the Bible focuses on, and I want to tell you why. When you read the book of Genesis, all of a sudden, things change, and instead of talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it focuses on a particular character, and that character is Joseph. We all know the story of Joseph, right? I hope you do, because I'm not going to tell you the whole thing this morning, Uh, If you don't know the story of Joseph very well, you can can find his story in Genesis 37 through 50. That's a pretty big chunk of scripture, okay? You should go back and read that if you're not familiar with it. But I'm just gonna summarize what happened in the story with Joseph. So we can summarize it this way. Through the story of Joseph, God maintains commitment to his singular plan of redemption by preserving the offspring of Abraham, that is the line through which the promised redeemer will come, from the threat of annihilation through famine. Okay. Uh, let me just read for you Genesis 50:20. Now, this is used in a lot of contexts to show the character of God that He's sovereign over evil, but I'm using it in terms of the actual storyline here. Genesis 50:20 says, "As for you, talking to his brothers. His brothers, by the way, sold him. They were very bad brothers. Okay, um, they were doing something evil to Joseph because they hated him. But God had a plan. He ended up in, in, in Egypt." in significant authority. There was no one greater than Joseph in all of Egypt except for Pharaoh himself, okay? That's pretty significant. And then uh, when he confronts his brothers about this situation, what does he say? Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you met evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now, normally it kind of stops right there, our reference to that, but listen to what it says. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are. What was the threat? There was no food in the land. And they had to, the, the tribes of Israel, the brothers, the, the 11, they had to go and seek out help from Egypt because they had storehouses of food, thanks to Joseph. So they have storehouses of food. They hear about this. They go seek out help from Egypt. And wouldn't you know it, God has a plan to keep Israel alive. Why does he need to keep Israel alive? Because he promised to bring the Redeemer through them so they can't die off, right? So the storyline of Joseph fits into the bigger picture, doesn't it? What is God doing? He's maintaining faithfulness to his promise from the beginning. He's keeping them alive because he made a promise to bring the Redeemer through them, and if they die off from famine, then God's not able to do what he said, and is God going to have that? Of course he's not. God only has one plan, remember, and he can see his plan through. Now, I'll reference also Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25, and it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. Listen, this is prophetic. This is prophetic. I am about to die. This is Joseph talking to his siblings. But God will visit you, and he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to bring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? How does he know that? How does he know that things are going to get bad for them there? Because things were actually good for Israel in the time of Joseph. They gave them land. They gave them food. All was good. Maybe this is the land of promise. I don't know. But no, it's not. Then they are in Egyptian captivity. They are treated very poorly. Enter in a new figure. Who's this figure? Moses. So why now Moses? I will summarize the story of Moses this way through the story of Moses, God maintains his commitment to his singular plan of redemption by preserving the offspring of Abraham, the line through which the promised redeemer will come, from the threat of annihilation through genocide. What is that? And what is genocide? Genocide is the killing off of a particular um, ethnic group, okay? Here's what happened. So we've, we've gone all the way through the end of Genesis, and we've started Exodus, and here's what it says in Exodus chapter one, beginning in verse eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So Israel has fallen out of favor in Egypt. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, our enemies will fight against us and they'll escape. they are slaves and they help us build stuff. We need them, but they're becoming too mighty for us. So let's kill them. Um, so they decide. Uh, Exodus one twenty two. Pharaoh commanded all the people: Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But every daughter, you shall let live. So here is genocide. Every male that is born to the Hebrews is to be cast into the Nile. Okay, this is known as infanticide. Okay, they're having infants, throw the baby into the river and let them die. We don't want those babies. And that's what he commanded. Now, um, I just want to, we're going to talk about the life of Moses because we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, right? Um, But I just want you to see that the story of Moses is not disconnected from the story of Genesis. Have I been successful in helping you see that? The story of Moses is not disconnected from the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The story of Moses is not disconnected from the story of Noah, The story of Moses is not disconnected from the story of Abraham, is it? Or is it one story leading us somewhere? Yes, it is. Now we talk about Moses. And before we do, maybe just a summary for you. The genealogies then are taking us, I would say, by the hand, down a very specific road. And that road leads us to Jesus. And the major turns in this road are the covenants and promises of redemption. So here we land in the life of Moses. Moses is born during this time when Israel has fallen out of favor in Egypt. The Egyptians hate them, and all the babies, the males, are to be thrown into the river. So this would be the fate of baby Moses when he is born to his mother. His mother has Moses, and she's supposed to throw him into the river. But she doesn't do it. She defies, right? And she waits three months, but then what does she do? Amazingly, I, I believe that she, she knew she wasn't going to be able to keep this secret, right? And so she makes this, this little basket and puts what we might call like tar on it and makes it um, so that it can float, but she puts it in a basket near the edge of the water and places it there. And the way this thing is constructed, it's obviously... Um, it's built all the way around. It's enclosed because when it's received or recovered, they have to open it to see what's in it. And so we have this imagery of a basket. I know you normally see like just a baby floating down a river and it's open. That's, <laughs> that's not the situation. But anyway, that, that he was in an enclosed basket at the edge of the water. She must have knew that uh, something happened right there because wouldn't you know it, in just a little bit of time, because the baby survives... How long could a baby survive in a basket by the water? Not very long. But very soon, someone comes by, sees the basket, and who does this person happen to be? But the daughter of Pharaoh. a Very powerful woman in Egypt. She has pity on the child. And then Moses' sister is standing by watching what would take place. What's gonna happen to my baby brother? And this happens and, and, and Pharaoh's daughter picks up the baby and, and, and Moses' sister interjects and says, I have an idea. Why don't you get a Hebrew woman to nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter says, oh, wonderful. And so that's a good idea. So Moses' sister says, I'll get someone for you. And who does she get? Well, of course, her mom, Moses' actual mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter ends up paying her to raise the child. That's unbelievable, isn't it? So this is the situation surrounding Moses' birth. God is preserving, I would say, in in an unbelievable, miraculous way on many fronts, God is preserving Moses and therefore the line through which the Redeemer would come. But he's doing more than that because he's also placing Moses in a position of authority much like Joseph. Because Moses, after he's grown, Will then be given to Pharaoh's daughter, and Pharaoh's daughter will then raise him as Egyptian royalty. So he will be trained well, he will be taught, he will be kind of in a sense pampered in all the ways of Egyptian royalty, and the New Testament confirms this about his life. But then one day, as Moses is grown, he witnesses one of the Hebrews being beaten by an Egyptian, and his heart is broken about this, so he kills the Egyptian and buries his body in the sand. That's sad, isn't it? But that's, that's the passion that he felt. But he did a bad thing. Should he have done that? No? Was Moses perfect? No, we, we know that pretty much right away about him, right? So he kills someone, buries his body, and then some other Hebrews are wrestling together, and they say, what are you going to do, kill us, like you did the Egyptian? And he was fearful because he didn't know that anybody else knew, so now he runs away from Egypt. He runs away from Egypt because now he fears Pharaoh because Pharaoh's gonna kill him for killing one of the Egyptians. So now Moses has fallen out of favor with Egypt. So here we are. And then one day, Moses spends time, he runs away from Egypt and uh, he ends up getting married. He finds someone and gets married and and they uh, go about their business. And all seems good. Um, And then we have... In kind of a just like a like a footnote that's mentioned in Scripture, and I just want to read it for you, because this is this this little footnote that obviously Moses added, because Moses wrote this on account of his own life, right? That he added because he doesn't want us to lose focus of the big story. Is it easy for us Christians to lose focus of the big story? So that when we read the Bible, we get so narrowly focused on these little details. What is the big picture of what God's doing here? What does He want us to know? And so he inserts this, and I think it's wonderful. It's so helpful. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. It says, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. The cry for rescue for slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What? just happened right there. That little insert says, don't forget the point of the story. God is being faithful to his covenant promises. Now, I know this is a good story, but don't get lost in the story trying to say, how can we be more like Moses? How can we be less like Moses? And that's the point of the story. Wrong. That's wrong. The point is, what is God's consistent character? What do we learn of God in this situation? What do we learn of our redemption in this situation? Now. Do we understand other principles along the way? Sure, but that's not the point. That's not the main point of the story. Do you see it? So, God will miraculously deliver and redeem his people because who prophesied that God would visit them and take them out of that land? Who said that? Joseph, do you remember? Didn't Joseph say, one day things are gonna get bad, but God is gonna deliver you, don't worry. God is gonna come and he's gonna rescue you because he will be faithful to you. God is faithful to us. Do you know that this same faithful God is faithful to us? How is he faithful to us? He is faithful to us according to his covenant promises. Are you in covenant with God? What covenant? Not the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant in Jesus Christ. Will God remain faithful to his covenant promises to you? Yes, no question about it. God is always faithful. God is always faithful. And we see his faithfulness here, don't we? Okay, so how will the storyline move forward at this point? So let's talk a little bit about this Mosaic Covenant. So I told you I was going to summarize up to Exodus 3. Here we are. Okay, so at this point, I want you to look at your Bible, if you would, please, at Exodus 3. I'm not going to break this down in the same fashion that I normally would a passage. This is for the sake of interest and looking at the Mosaic Covenant and looking at the big storyline of what all God is doing here. I hope that what's in our mind right now as we read Exodus 3, 1 through 22, we're thinking about Genesis and the story of creation, Adam and Eve and his children, and then all that God did with Noah, and then all that God did with Abraham, and all that God did with Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's 12 sons, in particular Joseph, who he raised up, right? And then, in particular, Moses. Did I tell you where Moses came from, by the way? He was a Levite. Both his mother and father were Levites. And so there we have Moses. And now, so we have this whole picture in our minds, right? And then we get to Exodus 3. Moses is in the wilderness. He's run away from Egypt. The people in Egypt are in slavery. They're not in the land of promise. Is God going to be faithful to his covenant promises? Is he going to bring us into this land? Is he going to bring the anointed redeemer? Is he going to do any of this, all of this? So God inserts himself now and says, I, by myself, will do something here. Look at all I will accomplish. Okay, so that's where we turn. Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Remember I told you he got married. Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. And so Moses said, now he's writing this, so he's quoting himself. He remembers what he said. I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush has not burned. Do you remember the story of the burning bush? Did you ever put it in line with all the rest of the story of the Bible? Or was it its own disconnected story? Many times, unfortunately, all these stories, including the flood story, are disconnected from the grand story of Scripture. So here's what's happening. God appeared. Why did God appear to him? Because Moses was a great man and he deserved a one-on-one talk with God? That's not it, is it? Okay. So uh, verse 3, Moses said, I will turn, I will see why this bush is not burned. And the Lord saw and he turned aside to see and God called to him out of the bush. And he said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet for the place you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Ah, this is tying us back to all the previous stories, isn't it? Who are you? What is this sight I'm seeing? I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, I am the God of Jacob, I am the God of Isaac. So Moses hit his face and he was afraid. And he said, Lord, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard the cry because of their taskmasters and other sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out out of that land to a land that is good and broad and a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Who's gonna do this? He is going to do it. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression by which the Egyptians oppressed them. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Wait, is he doing it or is Moses doing it? Well, God is doing it, but he's using an agent to accomplish it, isn't he? But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, when you have brought all the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they asked me, well, oh yeah, what's his name? And I'll say to them, what? And God answered Moses, and he said, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel, gather them and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. That's something only God can do, right? And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey to the wilderness that we might sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And then he will let you go. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When they let you go, you shall not go empty, but each uh, woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house, silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, you'll put them on your sons and on your daughters and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Wow, that's a lot. To come out of nowhere, out of a guy who killed a guy in Egypt and then ran away and is just kind of doing his own thing, living his own life, God appears to him. So you know that life you live that was really, really hard and you feel real sorry for yourself, don't you know that God had a plan for you? I mean, that has significant implication. Do you know? As the New Testament confirms for us, God does not waste anything, even the times of hardship and suffering in your life. God has a plan for you. It is true. It is not something that has been made up. God has a plan for your life. He sees all of it and he knows all of it far more than you do. He has a plan. He is seeing his plan through. So even when you think God has messed up with your life, he hasn't. God has not messed up with your life. But he does call you to faithfulness in the midst of it, doesn't he? As he is calling Moses to faithfulness, right? So the Mosaic covenant was a covenant made with the people of Israel and it is known as? the Old Covenant in the New Testament, okay? Why is it known as the Old Covenant? It's known as the Old Covenant because it becomes the primary covenant that's referenced throughout the history of Israel. So when we're talking about the covenant, we're talking about that Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, okay? You should also know, I think it's important to know, that uh, when we're talking about the, you have an Old Testament and a New Testament in your Bible, right? So it's kind of unfortunate that that's the terminology, but it is what it is. The word testament comes from a Latin word, testamentum. The Latin word is a translation of a Greek word, diatheke. Diatheke is a Greek word that's translation of a Hebrew word, berith. And berith, which we talked about, karat berith and hekim berith, means to cut or uphold a covenant. So what does berith mean? Covenant. What does diatheke mean? Covenant. What does testamentum mean? Covenant. But instead of translating it, we transliterated it, and we said testament instead of covenant which is what it actually means so when you're looking at your new testament it's in reference to the new covenant when you're looking at your old testament it's in reference to your old covenant so there's a new covenant in its writings there's an old covenant in its writings and that's what your old and new testaments are that makes sense um, so this covenant is known as the old covenant and it is the mosaic covenant In the Mosaic Covenant, God reveals more details about himself, specifically his name, his character, and his purposes, okay? His name, his character, and his purposes. Uh, Go ahead a little bit to Exodus 6, okay? You should be in Exodus 3. Go ahead just a little bit to Exodus 6, and I just want to read a couple of verses there. I'm going to push the fast forward button. You've, I think you already feel like we're on fast forward. I'm going to have to put a couple more arrows next to it and go even faster. Uh, but I don't want to miss this one part right here, okay? After that, we're going to make some summary statements. This was a hard one. This was a hard to cover all that God did through uh, Moses and the Mosaic covenant and the people of Israel. Uh, but what I wanted to emphasize, don't lose this, is that the Mosaic Covenant is part of God's one storyline, and it's not disconnected from all he's done previously. I just want you to see that and know that, okay? So Exodus 6, verses one through five, but the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, this is important, this is what I want you to hear, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Did you see that? God is revealing more details about himself to Moses than he revealed about himself to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He's revealing more about himself here than he had ever done previously. What did he say? They only knew me as God Almighty. Okay, God Almighty there may be a Hebrew word that you actually know as El Shaddai. You know that? You've heard that before maybe? El Shaddai is God Almighty. There was a popular Michael Card song that as I was studying this, I couldn't get it out of my head and I was singing it around my house. Okay? But El Shaddai, God Almighty, is what God was known as to them. But when it comes to Moses, he said, now I'm going to start revealing some more specifics. I want you to know my name. Here is my name. The Lord. That's probably what your Bible says. All capital letters, right? Uh, but that's, it's, that's not actually what it says. It says Yahweh. Okay, that's why it's in all capital letters. That's how most Bible translations are gonna translate, Yahweh. Okay, it's not Jehovah, it's Yahweh. Uh, and there's a reason for that. If you're questioning why that is, I'll let you know. Uh, but God is, is giving them his name, Yahweh. And remember before he said, when I go and they say, what's the name of this God? You say, I am who I am. It's because the name Yahweh is associated with a a verb in the Hebrew, which means to be. And so when the name Yahweh is used, it means the one who is. I am the one who is. That's what Yahweh means, okay? I am who I am. I am the one great existent one. No one comes before me. No one comes after me. No one is more mighty than me. I am who I am. I am. And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. They knew what he meant, and that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Blasphemy, they thought. And ultimately, this leads to Jesus' murder. And we might think that's terrible. But what do we know? That was God's plan. God's plan is that he would be hated, that he would be despised. Isn't that right? Right? Because if he was not hated and despised, he would not have been able to accomplish redemption. God has a plan. He is seeing that plan through. So God makes himself known as God Almighty previously. He makes himself known now as Yahweh, the one truly great existent one. That is who he is. And I'll just make a note here about the plagues on Egypt. And uh, and then I'm gonna have to, skip some things and get to my summary of application here of what I want us to walk away with. Um, but on the plagues on Egypt, again, I think we hear that story as somewhat disconnected from all the other parts of the storyline. Uh, the plagues on Egypt are not disconnected from Adam and Eve in the garden. The plagues are not disconnected from God making a name for himself. God has revealed his name and he said, by this name, I'm going to be remembered throughout all generations. And so the Exodus account. What God does with the Egyptians becomes that great reference point throughout all the rest of scripture about how great God is. You know that, don't you? Remember what God did, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. When did that happen? When did God separate the waters and redeem his people? It's all this, this moment in time, God just said, this is my name, Yahweh. I want to be remembered and you will remember me after what I'm about to do. So what does he do? He makes a name for himself. And how does he do it? By executing judgment on all the Egyptian gods. So each of the 10 plagues is associated with an Egyptian god. So water, frogs, locusts, whatever it may be. Of course, the killing of the firstborn. What What is that one doing? Cutting off the line of Pharaoh, who was, they believe, God incarnate right? So God is elevating himself. He's elevating his name among all the Egyptian so-called gods. And he is saying, you know, all these gods that you know by name, I am greater than them. And in fact, I'm going to show you how great I am still. So God is making a name for himself. You will remember the name Yahweh after this. I am Yahweh. I am the truly great one. Do you see it? So much more could be said on that. Here's what I'd like to do. The Mosaic covenant purposefully, I want you to see, anticipates a better covenant. Now, we didn't even really touch much on the law, did we? Because most of the time, the law is spoken of. It gets a lot of attention in the Bible, doesn't it? Doesn't the law get a lot of attention in the Bible, the Mosaic law? It certainly does. In fact, you have Deuteronomy, which, what does the word Deuteronomy mean? That Deuteronomy comes from two words, deuteros and namos, meaning second law, or a second giving of the law. And so it's the second time the law was given to the people of Israel, so it's kind of repeated. You have all this material on the law, right? Well, why, is all the, why are all these details given about the law? And many times we study the law, we see the law, we see national ethnic Israel, and we focus in on that, and it gets disconnected from the great grand story of God. And that's not how it's supposed to be interpreted. It's, it's a history, it is an account, that, that's true but God is doing one singular thing. He's taking us on one path by the hand through scripture. Where does that path lead? To Jesus, to Christmas Day. Doesn't it? Of course, without Christmas Day, we wouldn't have Easter. Without Easter, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? So, here just a, a few summary statements about this. Number one, the Mosaic Covenant purposefully anticipates a better covenant, and in what way is the new covenant better when we contrast it with the Mosaic Covenant? First, we have a better prophet. Well, who was the better prophet? Who was the prophet in the Mosaic Covenant? Moses. Moses. Did you know Moses is a prophet? Um, in Deuteronomy 18:15, it says, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's me? Moses." It is prophetically given that God is going to raise up a prophet that's better than Moses. But Moses, as a prophet of God, is anticipating a better prophet to come. We have that prophet. And who is he? Jesus himself, the greatest, right? Someone who speaks on behalf of God. Who spoke on behalf of God better than Jesus? Nobody. So in our new covenant, we have a better prophet, don't we? Next. We have a better priest. In the Mosaic Covenant, we have the establishment of the priesthood. You may know details about this. You may not know details about this, and that's okay. But you do know that there are priests in the Old Testament, don't you? And that there were sacrifices, and there were laws and customs, and they had to do very specific things, right? Um, But the priest mediates the presence of God. So the priest would go in on behalf of the people, right, we have a better priest. We have someone who goes into the presence of God for us who is better than all these priests that would die and you'd have to get a new priest. And they'd die and you'd have to get a new priest. And they'd die and you have to get a new one. We have a priest who remains forever. He never dies and he always stands in the presence of God for us. We have a better priest now, an eternal one, who mediates the presence of God for us. He is a mediator, right? We have Jesus I wanted to read so much of this for you. Reference Hebrews 8, okay? Really reference the entire book of Hebrews because the entire book of Hebrews contrasts the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, talking about how much better the New Covenant is than the Old Covenant, okay? You should know that about the book of Hebrews. Next, what do we have? We have a better law. Not only do we have a better prophet, a better word from God, we have a better priest, that's true, but do you know that we also have a better law? If you look back to the law of Moses and you say that was the greatest law that God ever gave, you're wrong. The New Testament disagrees with you. The New Testament says we actually have a better law. Not only do we have the law written on our hearts, but we have the law of the Spirit. We have the law of Christ himself. I'll read just a little bit of this one. Galatians 3, 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, talking about the Mosaic law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed so then the law was our guardian until christ came in order that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under the guardian that's not we don't live under that law do you know that you don't live under the mosaic law so when you read the old testament and you hear about all these laws and customs by the way though the mosaic law is more than the ten commandments i hope you know that the mosaic law is a lot of things and you are not under that law You are under a different law because you belong to a different covenant with a better prophet and a better priest, much better law, better promises, better hope. Everything is better. Everything is better. Okay, so the Mosaic covenant, an end in itself, and the people just couldn't live up to it, and so God tried with Israel and this law, and everything was perfect, and and it just didn't work, so God had to come up with a new plan. No, no. It was God's plan all along that the people wouldn't be able to keep the law. In fact, the law was given so that they might see how sinful they are. No matter how hard they try, they can't keep the law. No matter what they do, they just can't keep the law. They can't remain in favor with God. God is constantly judging them, right? We need something better. And thank God we have something better. Not only that, we have a better sacrifice. All the sacrifices we read about in the Old Testament... There's a lot of them, right? Read the book of Leviticus. There's a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrifice was intended to bring about atonement for sin. And you could do personal atonement. You could do offerings for God. And then you had the high priest who would had the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, once a year. And the high priest would then make atonement for all the people, for all the sins, but then when you sinned along the way, you had to make sacrifice for those too. Now, there remains a sacrifice for sins, but that sacrifice for sins was one and final. It's complete. It was the sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. And that sacrifice is enough for all of us. That one sacrifice makes atonement for sins forever. We don't need another sacrifice. In fact, to have another sacrifice would be blasphemous. It would be not taking God at his word right and then finally we have a better deliverance you know this was probably the thing that stuck out to me most as in terms of application to my own heart and mind is that god delivered these people out of slavery captivity and it was hard for them and he brought them eventually into a land of promise but what good is a land with a sinful people what good is land that is cursed do you know the land is cursed All land, everywhere, the whole planet, the whole universe. Humanity itself is under a curse. I'm gonna give you this cursed piece of land for a little while as sinful people. I don't know what good that's doing me. I still long for something else. Exactly, exactly. I still long for more. We need completion, we need fulfillment, we need perfection. And God gives us all of it in Christ Jesus. He gives us all of it. So we have a better deliverance. I'm going to read this and we'll end right here. So turn to me this one last place and we'll finish up for today, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26. Now you know about this church called the church in Corinth. They need to hear something. They need to be mindful of something. They were a sinful people right? They needed help, right? They needed instruction, didn't they? They needed to see the big picture, didn't they? Listen to what this says. So as we live our lives and we work through struggles in our own life and we try to cope with our, our brokenness and our frailties and the hard times in life and the struggles we have and the ups and the downs of it, never lose sight of the big picture of God's unfolding story. Do you hear me? never lose sight of the big picture. Do you know God's up to something? And it's not about these little individual details of life. Although he's in that, absolutely. God is doing something big. And for those who are in Christ by faith, do you know that you're part of that? He's not gonna fail. But be encouraged by these words. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 26, it says, for as by a man came death, who's that man? Adam. Adam. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. What did, what did Paul just do? He said, don't you know that Genesis is connected to what we're talking about here? Don't you know that there's one story going on here? For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But at each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ, and then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's the connection? God is delivering his people. You thought what he did with the water and turning the stabs into serpents and the plagues on Egypt, you thought that was Miraculous. He has delivered you from sin and death. That is far more miraculous. You see, the God that did that is the God that has redeemed you. Our God is a big God and He's doing big things, isn't He? And it is so comforting and encouraging to our hearts to be reminded of the big story of God and that we're part of it. I want to encourage you if you're hearing these things and You recognize that you are not part of it because you're just starting to understand who Jesus is. You're starting to understand that without Jesus, you have no hope. This doesn't belong to you. All the stuff we've been talking about, God's miraculous deliverance from sin, if you have never repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have no deliverance. You are the enemy of God and you will be destroyed far more thoroughly than all the Egyptians that died in the sea. That is coming for you. And the only escape, the only way to get out of the wrath of God is by faith in Jesus Christ, his Redeemer that he promised, that woman, or that that seed that would come from the woman in the garden, that Redeemer, that is Jesus. He already came. He has accomplished victory. And he is calling you to have faith in his name and all that he can accomplish. He will deliver you. He will deliver you perfectly. He will deliver you miraculously. And all he asks of you is that you would place your faith in him, who he is, and what he has done. And there is forgiveness for you. Forgiveness for all your sin. We need forgiveness. You need forgiveness for your sin. And you know what will be the result of this? Eternity with God in paradise. A better Eden. That's where we're headed. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for... uh, taking us on this journey through Scripture and just helping us to put the pieces together. Um, God, I pray for everyone in this room. I pray for myself. God, that your word would become clear to us. We know that you are the only one who can give eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we ask that you would do that today for all of us. Whether it be for the person in the room who's never heard and seen these things about Jesus Christ, I pray that you would reveal your strong arm of salvation to them in all that you have done for Christ in revealing to them their own sinful condition. And that without Christ, there is no salvation, but there is wrath to come. I pray that you would let them see that. That's only a work you can do, Lord. And I pray that you would do it. I pray also for us and in the same way reveal to us our sinfulness that still remains and clings to us, that darkness that has not yet been pushed out by the light of the gospel and the spirit at work in us. Lord, I pray that you would continue to do a work in this church, that you would purify us, humble us before you, that we would return praise to you, praise that you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name together. Amen.